junctures from Liverpool, England. People all over the world are just beginning to talk about the Beatles. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Today we have a very special guest joining us on the show, Barry Fratelli, the bassist of the Scottish rock band, The Fratellis. As one of the most exciting bands to come out of the UK in recent years, and as one of my favorites, The Fratellis have carved out a reputation for their infectious, guitar-driven anthems that are rooted in the classic sounds of rock and roll. But just how did the Beatles inspire the band's music? And what is it about the Beatles' legacy that continues to captivate generations of musicians and music lovers alike? In this episode, we sit down with Barry Fratelli to find out just that. This is the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, and this is Barry Fratelli. Hey, Barry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm a huge, huge fan of your music, and I can't wait to start asking you some questions about your songs and about the Beatles, because I know that you're a huge fan of them as well. I am indeed. I am indeed, yeah. So how did you become interested in the Beatles, and what drew you to their music? Um, it's a weird one, because they were always just kind of there, I know that's a kind of rubbish answer, but I mean, I, I got into music by sh- sharing a bedroom with my older brother and uh, he had a massive vinyl collection. So the Beatles were always just sort of there and part of it, you know, so it was just kind of accepted that that, that was good music because uh, that that was that's what I grew up listening to. But it wasn't until later where I started getting into music properly and started playing in bands and then it really... It really hit me way later on how amazing they were. And I've always felt quite lucky that that kind of happened to me later because I had so much stuff to discover, you know. So it was like finding a, finally getting into the Beatles in your, your mid-twenties and then, well, it finally hits you and you've got so much of the catalogue there to to get involved in. It was, it was great, you know. And when did you first decide to pick up the bass? And did the Beatles have any influence in that decision? They probably didn't at that time because that's when I was still a bit of an idiot and I didn't realise how amazing the Beatles were. But, <laughs> but that first band, um, I, st- I picked up the bass because, like a lot of bass players probably, I knew a band that needed a bass player and I'd played guitar for a couple of years. And uh, it was a friend of mine's, I can't remember now, my friend's sister's boyfriend or something had a band and he needed a bass player and... Uh, and uh, I ended up kind of like auditioning for that. That was the first band I was ever in, and those guys were massive Beatles fans, so that was the first time I was sort of exposed to it in a kind of bass playing sense as well. So uh, I think we covered... I saw her standing there at her first show as well. So Oh, wow. Not the easiest of bass lines to get thrown into when you're 14 years old and you're like, here, play this, you know what I mean? But it definitely helped because, uh, yeah, those guys were massive Beatles fans and that definitely had a an effect going on, you know. Really cool. And now, was it intimidating learning a McCartney bass line for one of your first gigs? 
Um, yeah, because the first gig we'd done, there was, we'd done some original songs, but there was some covers as well. And the other stuff I was all right with. I knew we were playing Pearl Jam songs and Oasis songs, can't remember well. But, I mean, I saw her standing there. was the, the, the first one I was like, shit, I better, better work out what I'm doing here, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to mess this up. So, yeah, it was, it was quite intimidating. But I remember thinking then... How the hell does this guy sing and play bass at the same time? And that's something that stuck with me all the way through, even now, you know. I was always, even though I wasn't a massive Beatles fan in the, in the beginning, I certainly am now, but in the beginning I wasn't, but I always had respect for him because he could he could sing and play these things at the same time, you know, which it's like trying to do that, pat your head and rub your stomach at the, at the same time. It's just... Your fingers do one thing, your brain's telling you to do something else. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. So, Oh, absolutely. And now for those who might not be familiar with how the Fratellis formed, can you tell us a bit about how you guys got together as a band? Yeah, I mean, we were probably... We're probably the sort of best uh, example of musicians just putting adverts up and, you know, musicians wanted boards and music shops. I'm sure that's all done online these days, but um, when I was younger, you would go to your local record store or your local guitar store and it'd be like, you know, drummer wanted, bass player wanted, whatever. So so at the time, I was looking to form a new band. So I went into the stores to put my ads up. And uh, I saw this one, this guy John was looking to start a band as well. So I'd put mine up and took his. I think I took all the numbers so nobody else could call it. <laughs> <laughs> Once me and John had got together, I think Mince had put an ad, he'd put an ad up as well, looking to start a band. So we all sort of found each other, which was always the best way that I thought to do it because I always thought it was, it was better starting a band with people that you don't know because it just seemed more professional to me, you know, rather than like band from your, your schoolmates or whatever. So I don't know. In my head, it just seemed like no, this is this is how you should do it. You know, you should start. You should start a band with guys you don't know because that's more professional. I, I guess it worked because it, it paid off. So. And did you guys click musically immediately, or how long did it take for you guys to realize that you had something special? Oh man, straight away, literally straight away. I mean, that was before we'd even met because, um, as I said, I'd got in contact with John first, and he'd uh, he sent me a demo. What was it? It was an album, it wasn't a demo. You know, it wasn't some shitty little demo. It was an album he'd kind of recorded himself and that's what he called his demos um, I'm sorry about the quality of these recordings and all that and I was like alright yeah yeah and then you put it on and it, it blew me away and uh, the first song was I don't know if you're familiar with the song but the, the first song was a song called Three Skinny Girls yeah. it came out as a B-side and some stuff and that was the first thing I heard and I think I played that like five times on repeat before I even got to the other songs so straight away I knew the music was 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 brilliant, you know. So that was before we'd even met and picked up guitars together, you know. So I was just desperate to get involved. and Because I've been playing in bands for years and stuff and, you know, everybody thinks their band's good, but when you hear something that is amazing and not that, that those first batch of songs were... Yeah, it was just great. I couldn't wait to get, get started. And I'm glad. I think that's the only one that's arrived, like, to, to what became the Fratellis, that song, Three Skinny Girls. So. 
And where are the rest of the songs today? I'd have to dig it out. I can't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I can't even remember what else was on. It was 10 or 11 tracks. And uh, he'd recorded it, trying to do something with it. I think he took it to a, a management company or a record label, a small label in Glasgow, and they said, yeah, that sounds good, but we want to hear it with a band. So that's why he was getting a band together. So again, that was another, like, uh, attractive proposition, you know, getting involved with something that already had interest. And as I said, the songs were brilliant anyway, so... But yeah, man, I'd be interested. I'm going to go back and find that. I'll have to let you know later because I'd be interested to see what other songs are on there or if bits of them became other songs or whatever because I can't, I can't remember now what they were. But, uh, well, that would be really cool. Yeah, I'll check it out. So are there any specific Beatles songs or albums that have influenced you and the Fratellis? Um, nothing specifically, as I said. Um... I mean, John is a massive, massive Beatles fan anyway, so that always came through in his writing. But there was no, there was no songs or albums specifically that influenced anything that we did. It just sort of shone through in what he done anyway, because John's idols were the guy that's sitting behind you, Bob Dylan, and the Beatles. So when you have those two things influencing your songwriting. Uh, it just came through in the, in the wash anyway, in the works. So, you know, that sense of melody and just catchiness and hooks and stuff. So there was nothing directly. Like, we didn't sit down and said, right, we're going to copy that or try to get something that sounds like that. It was just, uh, he was a massive Beatles fan. And it, and it shone through and he's writing and he's playing, you know. So. The Beatles experimented with a lot of different styles and sounds over the course of their career. And that's something that the Fratellis do really well as well. Are there any particular periods or styles of the Beatles music that you find particularly interesting or inspiring? Well, just everything you've just said there, man. That what um, once once I get fully absorbed into the Beatles world and as a musician, what was most interesting to me was the experimental years. You know what I mean? Like we're not going to play live. We're just going to record and see what we can come up with. And having having a studio like that at their disposal, you know, that was interesting to me and the, the, the stuff that that ultimately came out on albums. So that's what um, kind of drove us probably to not make every album the same. <coughs> Excuse me. Because, I don't know, a lot of bands do it and that, that's, that's good for them. But, I mean, a lot of bands can maybe, the next album might just be a carbon copy of the, the one that, that came before it, you know, and like, but we've always certainly found it um, important to try and evolve and change. You're, you know, you're always going to sound like you because it's the same three guys doing it, but I just think it'd be kind of boring if you just had out the same thing all the time. So that's something we've certainly probably got from, uh, you know, bands like, uh, albums like Revolver and stuff like that, the experimental side. And the sonics and just what you can do in a studio, you know, it doesn't have to just be guitar, bass and drums. It gets more interesting when you start recording things backwards and fucking hanging upside down and <laughs> doing things, you know. So that's, you know, ex experimenting in a studio was an amazing thing and I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall on Abbey Road back in the day just to, because, you know, 
they're the guys that started it, certainly, and sort of popular. Uh, obviously, there was all the avant-garde stuff going on and that, but they were, in my mind, the guys that started it in a sort of pop sense. So, yeah, that, that must have been mind-bending just to be involved and, you know, fuck, we can do that and we can do this and that sounds good and, you know, it would have been amazing. So we certainly took that sensibility when it comes to making albums and um, making albums themselves was something that's important to us because they're not just a bunch of songs. We always wanted to to release our music as albums, as proper, you know, they have a start and they have a middle and they have an end. It's a whole, it's a whole thing rather than just 10 songs that sound good together. So, so that's something we probably pinch for the Beatles as well. So, Oh yeah. And I think that's what separates great artists from everyone else. I think great artists look at the album as an entire piece of art. Absolutely. So looking back on all of your in-studio experimentation, do you have any favorite moments or anything that really stood out to you? And as an artist, how do you draw the line between thinking, this is a really cool experiment and I think we should go for it, and versus like, this doesn't really sound authentic to us and I don't think we should do that. Uh, does that question ever come up? Yeah, it certainly come up a few times. I mean, it's funny because when you're in the studio, you can spend hours doing something. You might find some mad sound on some instrument or other or whatever. Or you, you sit down, you, you think you've got an idea of how the song's going to go and how it's going to come to fruition when you're recording it. And then you can spend six hours fiddling with some little bit that you thought was cool. And then you can go for dinner and come back and go, no, that's absolutely terrible. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then it quickly becomes obvious what's going to work, what's going to serve the song, what you should have just ditched after 10 minutes and what might, might stick and, and make make that part of that song or whatever, you know, so... I think it becomes pretty obvious when you're messing about what stuff's going to work and what isn't. But like I said, you can spend hours, man, and we have done. You know, we're certainly not... Uh, that's the thing, we're not Metallica. We don't spend two years in a studio, you know what I mean? When we get in, we go in and we get out. As much as we record the process, it's just not the, the days... It's not the era of bands going into a studio for two years these days and messing about with stuff. We don't have time to do that. So if you spend six hours chasing some mad synth sound and then you decide it's rubbish it's kind of a waste of time you know it's good to uh be experimental but not too mad unless you own your own studio then you can do whatever the hell you want but uh we certainly don't so <laughs> you know the fratellis have been compared to the beatles at times particularly in terms of your upbeat pop and rock sound how do you feel about these comparisons and do you see any similarities between your band and the Beatles? That is a lovely, lovely compliment. And uh, yeah, as I said, John is a massive Beatles fan. So, and I mean massive, you know, you should have probably really been talking to him on this, not me, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to fill in. <laughs> so, so for that to shine through in his songwriting and for people to recognise that is... Yeah, that, that's that's an honour, you know what I mean? Because it's, that's that's what it's all about. And uh, and there's lots of bands, there's lots of bands and musicians and we've, we've all only got guitars 
drums and basses, you know, so it's all going to sound the same at one point, but for some stuff to shine through, some little elements of quality to shine through, like getting compared to the Beatles and certain things for your for your melodies and uh, certainly his lyric writing, things like that. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, and uh, I'll take that any day of the week. So thank you very much for that compliment. <laughs> so Barry, what are some of your favourite moments of your career? Um, just getting to do it and do it properly, you know. For me, um, starting a band again to tour the world, you know, having your music released far and wide in Japan, China, America, Australia, and actually getting to tour that and do it properly. You know, that's the most exciting thing to me. And it's something I'm certainly very grateful for that we've we had the chance to do and we still do, you know, we still tour worldwide. And But I mean, individual moments, there's been so many, but um, we were lucky enough to play with Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey on separate occasions. And uh, I mean, the who are... I should have said earlier, the Who are my be on end all band. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, to be in the Who twice with different members of the Who for, like, five minutes each, that that's, doesn't get any better to me, you know. Uh, Townsend joined us on stage uh, South by Southwest a couple of years ago, and he, want, he was supposed to come on, we'd arrange, but we're going to do The Seeker together, which we did. It's, it's up on YouTube, it's brilliant. But he kind of wandered on as we were finishing the song before it and he just launched into the last chorus of one of our tracks, Got My Nuts From My Hippie. So that moment when, you know, you're nervous because you know the next thing you're going to do is Pete Townsend's going to come on and that's, you know, you can retire happy. But for him to wander on mid-song and then just finish your song that we didn't even know he knew and then launch into The Seeker, man, that's probably my top top moments you know that it, it's not going to get any better than that so that is so awesome <laughs> yeah man that's a that was a good one when it comes to writing bass lines are you primarily influenced by like entwistle bass lines or mccartney bass lines how do you hone in and focus on the melody that you're writing um both and a whole lot more certainly um yeah john entwistle was a massive just from day one before I even knew what I was doing, that was the. I was like, I want to, I want to sound like that, you know. I want to make that noise because, uh, and then later on, as I said, when I get more into McCartney and the Beatles style, that sense of melody, those melodic bass lines. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing worse in the world to me than a boring bass player. I, I fucking hate it, and it can make or break a band, you know. Sorry for swearing, I don't know if we're allowed here on... You might have to edit it later. <laughs> yeah, you're all right. Yeah, there's nothing worse when you hear a great song. and I mean, I'm not an amazing bass player by any stretch of the imagination, but when you hear an amazing song and then you, you're like, oh, man, the bass line sucks or whatever. So it's important to me. I made a decision early on. If I'm going to be a bass player, I'm going to do it right and I'm going to you know, seek out the melody. And I tend to follow the vocals quite a lot when I'm kind of constructing and coming up with bass lines, so... And, uh, yeah, I get pointed out a couple of times when we were making albums and certain people um, commented on it and I, I certainly took it as a compliment to have melodic bass lines sort of weaving in and out. The bass has got its job to do, but it can't be too flash and it can't be too shit. It's got to just, you know, it's just got to be there. 
that's the kind of territory that I try and occupy. Like, uh, you know I'm there, but, if, you know, I don't want to be too uh, overbearing. You need to serve the song, ultimately. Mm. I think when you're when any instrument, you know, you can't, uh, can't bang in a bass solo every song, you know what I mean? It's got to serve. So if it's... If the song calls for you to sit back and just settle into a groove, then that's brilliant. Or if the song calls for a flashy bit, then that's great as well. But you, you have to serve the song. That's the most important thing. So. Now, do you have any favourite bass lines? Fratelli's ones? Yeah, Fratelli's or other. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, favourite Fratelli's bass lines? Probably... Well, today, anyway. Got my nuts from a hippie from the first album. Country Boys and City Girls. It's a really... If I do say so myself, a really good bass line. <laughs> See, that's got a wee bass solo on it as well, so I was lucky to get to squeeze that in in the studio. But, um, in terms of other great bass lines... Oh, man, there's, there's so many. There's so many. And I'm hitting a blank just now, you know. Won't get fooled again, Who-wise. Beatles-wise, just about everything, because I've, there's not a duff bass line. You know, there's bass lines that I thought that, um, that have really grown on me over the years when it comes to McCartney's bass playing, like, Obla Dee, Obla Da. You know, it's, again, it's just one of those songs that's always sort of been there. But I remember sitting down and deconstructing it one day to try and learn the bass line. And it's just mind-bending, you know, the... I said earlier about bass lines weaving in and out songs and, you know, sitting under the melody and being melodic and stuff like that. Uh, that's that's one example, you know, that's uh, that, that stands out. I don't know if you've ever seen the video of the Beatles performing Nowhere Man live in Munich, Germany in 1966, but um, during that performance, Paul's bass is turned all the way up and the bass line of that song really stands out and it's just incredible that's another one as well man i mean that's a i mean i remember watching so i was on some interview somewhere you probably know it more than me but um i think someone asked him uh do you plan the bass line because he obviously he's he's writing the songs right him and lennon but somebody asked him do you plan what you're going to play on the bass before you go in and he's like nah it just comes out and i was like what it just comes out <laughs> like, fucking hell and that song in particular, you know, that's such a beautiful song. It's such a beautiful bass line. And the bass is doing things that it shouldn't do. And, I, you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't do that. But it's just amazing, that song in particular. Um, and so many other songs like that. But for me to, yeah, to hear on that interview with him, he doesn't plan what he's going to do before he sits down and lays the bass line down. I mean, come on. That's, that's just bonkers, you know. So, uh, yeah, I wish I could do that. <laughs> I do my homework for months before I go into a recording studio, but uh, there you go. Have you seen the Get Back documentary? Because there's a great moment where Paul is just sitting down with the bass and he's just strumming and Get Back just comes out. I love it. Abs absolutely love it. I've seen it. Um, I was so excited for it coming out. I've probably watched the whole thing four or five times, you know, all three parts, and I still want more. You know, I heard there's all this extra footage, and I, I want, I want that as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But that, yeah, that section you're referring to, where he's, you know, he's messing about, and he ends up coming up with a riff that's going to be get back. That's just 
beautiful just to see that floating about and that those that bass like that bass catching those notes and I don't know how it works. People say that songs just float about and you're lucky enough to get them or whether it's you coming up with them, I don't know. But to actually see that happening, oh, it was brilliant, wasn't it? I'm going to go and watch oh, that yeah. again tonight, I think. But uh, yeah, I want more. I want to see the extra footage. I want to see the shit bits. I want to see the bits they think weren't, yeah, should we put this in, should we not? You know, I want a 68-hour Blu-ray version. That's what I want. Yeah, me too. Are there any other moments from that documentary that stood out to you? Um, That's definitely my favourite moment. No question, man. So, you, yeah. I, don't, I love all of it. I can't... I really... Most heartbreaking moment is when, uh, when George quits. You know, I was in tears. Whether that's a favourite moment, I don't know. But, you know, just... Uh, I mean, people in bands fall out all the time and, you know... Ah, fuck you, I'm leaving, and, you know. And you know the Beatles do it as well, because it's textbook, every band's do it, but to see it happening, um, yeah, that was that was such a sad moment. But the, the favourite moment is probably the culmination of the gig, the rooftop shows, you know, and how nervous they were. Uh, they still weren't, a couple of them still weren't convinced whether they should be doing this show, no, a favourite moment I remember is when McCartney turns around and he sees there's two coppers, two policemen behind him. You know that bit? Of course, yeah. They're obviously the police are at the door and they're telling them to turn it down or whatever. And there's a lovely moment where he turns around and he sees two cops behind him and he turns around and he's just got this really cheeky grin on his face, you know. So that aye, that's probably one of my other top moments in it. He's like, fucking yes, you know. Because that's what he wanted to do, wasn't he? He wanted to to cause a storm with that. He wanted to do something meaningful with that whole thing, so that's a lovely little moment in it as well. But there's so much, man. There's like nine nine hours. It's none of it's none of it's rubbish, you know. There's not a moment where you go and put the kettle on, you sit down and that's you. You're in, you know. Do not disturb for the next <laughs> for the next <laughs> nine hours. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think I watched the whole thing in one sitting. And the way Peter Jackson set it up, it's like you're watching a movie you know, you already know the ending, but it's like you're anticipating what's going to happen next. It's amazing. Absolutely, man. I thought it was great because, I mean, obviously a lot of the, the footage had been seen before. Uh, but there were certain bits, you know, and because of the how good it looked, you know, 4K, HD, restoration, whatever the hell he did. But it was like watching a documentary when there was all these handsome young guys playing the Beatles and it was just sounded great and it looked great and... Yeah, it really was like a fly-in-the-wall experience, man. It was absolutely one of my favourite ever musical oh, documentaries, yeah. whatever you want to call it, you know. It's fantastic. Do you have a favourite memory that's associated with the Beatles? Yes. Um, finally getting to see uh, see Paul McCartney live uh, because I didn't think it was going to happen because I, I had opportunities before and it... I never, I never quite came to fruition. We were always on tour or something or something happened. But um, I found myself at the end of a tour in Japan and uh, he was playing a show at the Tokyo Dome. And that's actually the poster from it behind me because I stole it off the wall on the way out. Oh, that's really cool. So that was the first time... That's awesome. Uh, first time I'd seen McCartney live when I was fully 
you know, when I was fully absorbed and when I was a Beatles nut. And uh, to see it in somewhere, to see him, sorry, somewhere like Japan just added to the weirdness and the, the, the surrealness of the whole experience. It was brilliant, man. It was fantastic. Now, I think we touched on this before, and I think you said that you don't have a favorite Beatles song, but I was wondering if you have a favorite Beatles album. Oh, no, I do have favorite songs and albums. I think before we were saying, uh, had it anything particularly influenced the Fratellis? But yeah, man, I've got, I've got loads of favorite albums and songs, but my, my overriding, it changes every day, but um, my favorite song probably is always uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. Um, favorite album is the White Album, because that's the album that, when I really got it, when I really sat down and went, right, this is what the Beatles are all about, it was the White Album that, that did that, so that still remains my favorite. I love Let It Be, and I love, my two favorites are probably uh, Revolver and Rubber Soul. They're the ones that don't really change. But you could ask me again next week and I could give you a completely different answer. But the main song that always sort of, um, <coughs> that always sort of remains my favorite is Tomorrow Never Knows. Because that sort of, that song sort of sums up the 60s to me in my head, just, you know, for all the uh, psychedelic aspects of it and all that, and just that pounding beat and everything. It's, yeah, that will never not be one of my favorites, so. Such a cool song. You're right. It does sum up the 60s. I mean, just the way it sounds. I know John wanted it to sound like the Dalai Lama chanting from a mountaintop, but it really does sound like you're there in Tibet or the Himalayas or something like that. It sounds like you're on acid when you're listening to it. It's, <laughs> I know he, he started off wanting it to sound, yeah. you know, like the uh, Dalai Lama chants, whatever. And you hear the different versions of it and the demo versions in an uh, anthology. And it's interesting to hear it, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's all right. But then it became, I don't know if he jumped, if Lennon jumped up on the drums or whatever, one of them changed the drum beat. And it, it just became the 60s in a can, in a bottle, you know. It's just, it's glorious, man. It's that pounding drum beat and uh, the bass line, getting back to talking about bass, it's so simple, you know. It's about four notes in it. It just grooves, and it's boof. It's it's a glorious thing, man. It's the sixties in a bottle. That's what I call that song. <laughs> so, what's your favorite song by the Fratellis? Um, again, it changes a lot, but one of the ones uh, most recently is a song called "I Am That." That was on uh, an album we did called "In Your Own Sweet Time." And uh, that closed the album. And that's, talking about bands being experimental and things like that, that's probably the most diverse and experimental we've ever been as a band. So, and that song probably sounds more like the kind of stuff that I listen to or, or do. It's, um, it definitely doesn't sound like a traditional Fratelli song, but you can still tell it's us. But that had loads of experimentation in it in the studio, you know, there's there's all sorts on that track where it, it rushes and uh, our producer on that album, Tony Hoffer, he had loads of mad ideas for that as well because that was one of the ones that, you know, we were all on board with how mad we wanted it to sound and how can you take this up a notch when the song builds and 
I don't think he never told us till later, but he's got like jumbo jet engines behind the bass lines and all that, and low down on the mix, and the whole thing just rises into a a beautiful moment. So, so yes, my favorite song is probably "I Am That." I got to tell you, my favorite song right now by the Fratellis is "Starcrossed Losers." I think that's a great song, and I think it sounds like the Beatles too. Yeah, it yeah it does. I've never actually yeah. It's always sounded like the police to me. Oh, yeah, I could hear that too. Sure. Because I was conscious of, I'm a big police fan as well, and I was like, this just sounds like a Sting bass line, and I'm going to make it sound even more like a Sting bass line. And it's... But yeah, yeah, it's good, definitely get Beatles elements to it. I should, I should probably go back and listen to that as well tonight. And uh, But again, that just comes through, and uh, as I said, in John's, I think it just flows naturally from his brain and fingers you know so to to still come out like that and have these little elements that sound like the Beatles and tracks is brilliant that's a nice one because it's sort of um that was the first one that was written for that album as well so the first tune sort of informs how the rest of it's going to be in uh not a direction as such but definitely a style so uh yeah that's a great track that one if I do say so myself, even though it was supposed to be Sting. <laughs> but. So, Barry, what are you up to now? Are you involved in any new projects with the Fratellis? Is there any new music coming out? Yeah, that's what we're doing at the moment. We're just trying to uh, scrape some ideas together and uh, hopefully go into a studio at some point this year and get a chance to do it all again. So, yeah, this year is going to be mainly about writing and recording. And we'll probably do some shows towards the end of the summer. But it's uh, we tend to have years every three years or so where we don't do as much touring. Like normally we hit the summer festival circuit quite hard. And <coughs> excuse me, but this is definitely going to be a let's get in the studio and come up with something new so we get the chance to go out and tour again. So uh, it's quite exciting. So I'll keep you updated to see what comes next. Awesome. And when can we be expecting that announcement? Oh, maybe. No, I don't know. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> we need to finish writing them first and get them recorded. So I'd like to think, uh, I don't know, we could maybe squeeze something out at the end of this year, but realistically it would probably be next year. Yeah, so I'd like to think we can get something out of the early part of maybe this time next year. And, uh, and then we'll be out and we'll be off and touring again. Album seven, will that be? No, that's not right. The seven albums? Album six or seven, I can't remember. <laughs> but even that in itself, yeah, to be sitting here years later and talking about your seventh album is is, a, is an amazing thing these days, you know. We certainly don't take it for granted. So. And let us know if you find those original Fratelli's demos. That'd be great to listen to. I'm going to go on. I mean, I've got a box. I've got the, uh, I call it the Fratelli's Archives. Because I'm the only one that keeps everything. So I've got all the demos and I've the blackmail box. I've got everything in there, you know. I've got uh, demos and flyers and all the early gig posters and stuff like that. And so it should be in there. And uh, I'm going to go and find it tonight and I'll let you know what other songs were on it. And if any of them made, that ended up becoming other Fratelli's tracks or something. I'm, I'm quite interested myself now to see what else was on that. Oh, that'd be really cool. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll drop you a line after I, 
after I do my homework and watch Get Back for the fifth time. <laughs> I'll drop you an email, let you know how it goes. Well, Barry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to rate the show and subscribe to this podcast so you can get notifications every week when a new episode is released. Thank you to Barry Fratelli for coming on the podcast and for putting out years of amazing music. Thank you all for listening, and as always, I'll see you next week.